Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. As always, I'm your host, Christian Massar, and surprise, surprise, we have another episode about Russian history. So what I'm going to be looking at today is the development of Holy Russia, a governmental and religious narrative. So the concept of a national holy land is certainly nothing unique to Russia, and it's a product of the religious and state bodies working together. In his work, entitled Christianity and the Secular, Robert Marcus stated that after Constantine Christianized the Roman Empire in the 4th century, Christians had to redefine their role in the world. In doing this, Christians would uh, attain a both a secular and a religious identity. One can see this similar process occurring through the course of Russian history, since the conversion of Kievan Rus to Byzantine Orthodox Christianity in the year 988. Over the centuries, an image of Russia as a sacred nation developed. In this narrative, Russia became eventually known as the Third Rome, God's final Christian kingdom, and this idea carried with it an apocalyptic vision of the future and through it, a call to national holiness could be issued. In this work, I aim to show how this image was constructed from its Byzantine spiritual roots, while also explaining how this mindset played out in the relationship between the Russian state and its church. After giving this background, I will also show some of the actual consequences or manifestations of this idea through a few examples, um, also through including through the example of the Raskol, which was the schism within the Russian Orthodox Church in the 17th century between Patriarch Nikon, the state, and the old believers. But we'll also see some other examples as well. But first, we have to start at the beginning. We have to start at the beginning of the Holy Russia myth, and we have to look to Russia's salvation. To look at the development of Holy Russia, we must first start at the beginning, which is occurs in the 10th century. And we look at Kievan Rus, a medieval polity, which formed the roots of what is now modern Russia, as well as Belarus and Ukraine. Politically, Rus was rather disjointed and, and at times chaotic. Through its appanage system, the realm was split between the Kievan Grand Prince's sons upon his death. This increased the chances of civil strife, and it greatly weakened any notion of central authority. Rus was at first not united in the spiritual realm either, as its inhabitants worshipped multiple local gods, such as Perun, Stribog, and Mokosh. In the late 10th century, Prince Vladimir's father Sviatoslav gave him the city of Novgorod, which was rather distant from Kiev, which was the seat of the central Grand Prince. Yaropolk was now, Vladimir's brother was now in Kiev, and Vladimir was in, in Novgorod, but eventually, Vladimir took the grand title when he had the Yaropolk murdered. Nice guy. In his book, Sailing from Byzantium, Colin Wells shows us how the state's relationship with religion was already very important at this point in Russian history. Wells argues, and quite reasonably, that the new Grand Prince Vladimir desperately needed some political capital. This prince was from a remote corner of Rusland, and he had murdered his elder brother for power over a politically and religiously divided land. Wells states that Vladimir immediately constructed images of Perun and the other regional deities. Vladimir conducted campaigns in Rus against Rus's rivals at the same time, clearly showing that he was uh, willing to achieve or trying to build political centralization through both hard military and soft or religious power. But there was a problem with his attempt at soft power. Wells says the following, Local gods evoke local ties, not loyalty to a central government. It's important to know that there were also Christians, Muslims, and Jews living in Rus land, and neighboring principalities such as Khazaria also followed the, the monotheistic religions based on written down scripture. Perhaps it was time to abandon the old gods of Rus and embrace another single deity. 
The narrative of Rus's conversion to Christianity, as told in the Russian Primary Chronicle, it's, it's a somewhat entertaining story that should be very familiar to anyone who has studied Russian history. In this narrative, Grand Prince Vladimir listens to the theological thoughts of Muslim Volga Bulgars, Jewish Khazars, and Western Christian Germans. The Muslim prohibition of alcoholic drink does not appear to Vladimir at all. He rejects Judaism because in his mind, God had abandoned the Jewish people in allowing them to be scattered uh, away from the Holy Land after the, the rebellions against Rome. And the practice of fasting made Vladimir also reject Catholicism. He then sent representatives to Byzantium, the land of Orthodox or Eastern Christianity. Upon seeing the Orthodox services in the great Hagia Sophia Church in the city of Constantinople, the envoy was at a loss for words. They did not know if they were in heaven or on earth, as tradition says, and the liturgy was this beautiful. They reported that God dwells there in Constantinople among men. Upon hearing this, Vladimir is supposed to have decided to find salvation in the Orthodox world. After the Prince of Kiev was baptized in the year 988, he commands the old, old deity's images to be destroyed. The primary chronicle con continues the conversion story, which clearly shows politics having power over individual religious conviction. Quoting from the primary chronicle, Therefore, after Vladimir sent heralds throughout the whole city to proclaim that if any inhabitants, rich or poor, did not betake himself to the river, he would risk the prince's displeasure. When the people heard these words, they wept for joy and exclaimed in their enthusiasm, If this were not good, the prince and his boyars would not have accepted it. They all went into the water of the Dnieper River and were baptized. Colin Wells contends that while the Primary Chronicles narrative has some historical merit, he looks more to Byzantine, Byzantine politics to explain Rose's conversion. The Byzantine Emperor Basil was fighting for survival against a rival family as well as Bulgarian rebels. The embattled emperor called to Grand Prince Vladimir for military aid, offering, his mar offering marriage to his sister Anna in trade. Vladimir would also have to accept Christianity, however, and these negotiations happened in 988, the very year of Vladimir and Rus's baptisms. And so another part of the beginning of the Holy Russia myth, upon conversion, Rus became a holy successor to Byzantium. In marrying Anna and accepting the Byzantine Empire's faith, Vladimir made the Rus's lands a religious province of Constantinople. During the medieval period, Orthodox Slavs looked at Byzantium's capital, which they called Tsargrad, or the city of Caesar, they looked at Constantinople as the mother of their religious spirit. And, and in the words of John Meyendorf, they looked at Constantinople as even the cultural standard by which their own cultural models would be to be evaluated. Considering themselves to be part of the Byzantine religious space, Slavic pilgrims still visited Constantinople centuries after Kiev's, Kiev and Rus's conversion. Even more importantly for our study, from the year 988 to 1448, the Orthodox authorities in Byzantium appointed the usually Greek religious leaders of Kiev and also of Russia. We've seen how the people of medieval Rus spiritually perceived the Byzantine Empire. So it's kind of a, a spiritual, we've received our spirituality from Constantinople. And this later applied to the Russian people. And just sort of as a little side note here, I'm going to sometimes refer to Rus and Rus Russia as maybe interchangeably at times, since Russia can be perceived as one of Rus's cultural, political, and religious successors. So this idea of medieval Rus looking to Byzantium for spiritual, spiritual fatherhood, if you will, this will, can also apply to Russian culture mindset as well. And we've seen a little bit of the political dynamics of Rus's conversion to Christianity, and this political relationship between the two Orthodox powers is worth spending some more time to explain. If Rus, or later Russian leaders, wanted to appoint local religious authorities of their own, 
they sought the Byzantine emperor's permission. Russians also had to show respect to political leaders in Constantinople, even mentioning them in religious liturgies. The Byzantine emperors responded by calling Russian rulers their, quote, nephews. Byzantine political religious sovereignty over the Orthodox Christian world was evidenced in 1393 when Patriarch Anthony IV called the Byzantine ruler the, quote, emperor and autocrator of the Romans, that is, all Christians. And even as the political power of Constantinople started to fail over the years, this, quote, universal Byzantium endured. The economical patriarch and the Orthodox Church remained, even as the political organization of the empire was destroyed and conquered in the 15th century by the Ottoman Turks. Russia obtained its own Orthodox Church in the form of the Moscow Patriarchate in the late 10th, 16th century. Yet, as a sort of child of Byzantium, Russia was not actually fully subjected to its spiritual father. The words translatio imperii have been aptly used to explain what happened. Byzantium's imperium was passed to medieval Russia, which gained some of the empire's political capital along with its faith. By the early 15th century, the idea had been conceived that Russia, by then centered around Moscow, or Moscovy at the time, would become the next Byzantium if the empire collapsed. This political-religious paradigm between Byzantium and medieval Russia is, is important to understand if we want to understand Russia as a holy land, or the Third Rome. Also, with the idea of Russia as a successor to Byzantium in our minds, we should examine how the church-state dynamics played out in Constantinople. And in Byzantium, this relationship was encompassed in an idea coined by Emperor Justinian in the year 535, going way back here. This was the idea known as symphonia. This concept closely married to the, closely married the throne to the church the ruler could intervene in religious matters in order to protect the faith. According to John Meyendorf, there was no legal system of imperial succession in Byzantium, so the Orthodox Church's support of the emperor was vital. The patriarch, who was the church's head, could not work without the emperor, who was considered a universal ruler. The patriarch projected the image of Christ upon the church and its Christians, but the emperor did the same upon the state. However, some emperors had been declared heretics, so Symphonia did not offer the political rulers a religious carte blanche to do whatever they wanted or declared. It was also crucial for them to understand well the Christian concepts such as salvation and the Trinity, which emphasizes the greater importance of the spiritual over the political in this relation in this in some aspects of this relation this state church relationship. The empire and the church were both part of God's providential plan. With regards to Russia, Byzantium's child, the, the principle of Symphonia was applied at various points, which we'll examine later. To quote Alexander Muller, who wrote about Peter the Great's attempts to usurp political control of the Russian church, quote, the ultimate goal in life was conceived in Moscovite Rus to the salvation of man's immortal soul, and both Tsar and Patriarch regarded as requisite their participation in the attainment of that goal. It's been suggested that, like the Byzantine emperor of the past, the Russian Tsar could get involved if the, Ru if the Russian church failed in this aim. So you have this idea of symphonia, where the, the church and the state run together, but there are times when they did contradict each other. The church could declare a Byzantine emperor a heretic, and the emperor also gets involved with the church. And it's sort of inheriting that system, you see that happening throughout various points in Russian history as well. So now, now that we have, we've established the relationship between Byzantium and Rus, and which eventually became Russia, we can also look now at the break between Byzantium and Russia. So we must, this is a rather ironic ideological split between them. So, and we'll look at other factors involved in the creation of Holy Russia, but this Byzantine-Russian divide was a very important step on the road to Russia's 
religious independence, an eventual image as Holy Russia or the Third Rome. To examine this step, we must take a step, we must take a quick look at the dynamics that were present between the Western, Catholic, and Eastern, or Orthodox, wings of Christianity. We won't concern ourselves here with the details of the great schism between the Catholic and Eastern churches. Those are beyond the scope of this study. But John Meyendorf, again, has offered a good summary of this for us. He suggests that the schism occurred after centuries of controversy over the role of the Holy See of Rome. And the Holy See was Roman's, Roman Catholicism's center of power in the person of the Pope. So this was ultimately a fight over the Roman Pope's authority over Christianity. How much power should he have over Christians? And that was the question in the debate between Eastern and Western Christianity. And eventually this led to the break between Catholicism and Orthodoxy in 1054. Around this time, the Eastern Church declared the Pope and his followers to be out of Christianity. And the Eastern or Orthodox Patriarch called the Pope an apostate. The Western Crusaders sacking of Constantinople in 1204 and the eventual restoration of Byzantine power in 1261 cemented this split between the two wings of Christianity. It's worth looking into some of the theological differences between Eastern and Western Christianity. As aside, from, aside from the authority over, over the jurisdiction of the person of the Pope, there was also some religious differences. For example, in Orthodoxy, the focus of spirituality was through the light of Scripture and through the, through the mysteries. And this was the Eastern Christian word for sacraments. And so in Orthodoxy, the focus was on Scripture and, and through the mysteries. And this was, this was important in, in Western Christianity too, Scripture and also, um, also the sacraments. But in, in Western Christianity, there developed this idea of intellectual or scholastic learning. This was important in the Western faith. And, but in the East, there, this kind of scholastic learning didn't, didn't quite develop as strongly. And, so, and theology was not the subject of universities, uh, according to the East, but it was rather to be practiced universally in the streets, in churches, and in politics. The idea of symphonia is an example of this latter point. Some of the words describing Eastern Christianity could be considered rather negative to the ears of some ra someone raised in a Western mindset. So for example, some might see Eastern Christianity as the following, world and body denying, irrational, neglecting daily reality, dismissive of reason. So that sounds really negative to someone raised in a Western mindset. But, but on the other hand, if someone raised in an Eastern Christian mindset of this time could look at somebody in the West and say, your faith is too rational. You're not letting religion or the light of, of, of God have its full effect. You're re relying on ration, rationality, reason, study, but you shouldn't focus on those things as to as the center of your faith in God, right? So, so this was another important difference. But, however, we shouldn't we shouldn't allow this to give us the impression that orthodoxy wasn't capable of theological thought and kind of so-called uh, scholastic or re or rational study. Orthodox thinking was more in line with a Platonic philosophical worldview. So they did have certain philo philosophical worldviews. But overall, the, the general idea is that in the West, there was a lot of focus on rationality, learning, study. This became important while in the East, again, we shouldn't rely on reason and rationality. And also, we must not think that there was complete and total disagreement between Catholic and Orthodox religious thinkers. The Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, for example, still had mystical evidence in his, quote, very rational Christian form of Aristotelian philosophy. And the Greek or Eastern Church father's influence was still felt in the West. 
and both sides had similar opinions about the nature of Jesus Christ. For example, his status as God's son, his divinity, his personhood in the Trinity. In the 13th century, Aquinas did criticize the East for the limits of the Greek language in describing some religious matters, and he tried to affirm Western Christian teachings such as, and this is a big one, the such as the filioque and the Roman Pope's authority through Orthodoxy's own Greek sources. So, and the filioque, I mentioned, I paused there to emphasize the point of the filioque because it's very important. The filioque was a belief in Western Christianity that, contrib that contributed to the Eastern-Western religious schism. This belief essentially says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was given to Christians or proceeded from the Father as well as the God the Son, Jesus Christ. Eastern Christians, on the other hand, believed that the Spirit proceeded only from God the Father. So this is a very important difference between the two. Yet, while Aquinas did find Eastern Christian views to be incorrect, he still did not go the whole way and declare Orthodox believers to be intentional heretics. Marcus Plested suggests that the East-West disagreement was a battle between Catholic essentialism and Orthodoxy's personalism. In the East, Catholicism's scholastic, quote, overly intellectual Aristotelian philosophy and canon law, that's another aspect of Roman Catholicism where there's actually a legal system, there's canon law. And you even have canon lawyers studying these things. So you have this um, Aristotelian philosophy and canon law, and these were perceived as being so rational, rhetorical, and scientific that they reduced personal existence. Such thinking, according to an Eastern mindset, diluted the quote-unquote mystic nature of the Christian faith, which was, and it still is, emphasized in Eastern Christian religious thinking and practice. We must not carry on much further with the differences between Orthodox and Catholic theology, but what we have here are some of the essential disagreements between the two faiths, a rational West and a mystical East, according to those two um, generalizations. Now, we need to proceed to a defining moment in these Orthodox-Catholic relations, which was the Florentine Union of 1439. During his extensive background to the Florentine Union, V.A. Malinen notes that even though the Western Crusaders' attack on Constantinople in 1204 may have been the, quote, final straw in the Eastern-Western religious split, there were, sub there were subsequent efforts at reconciliation and unity. The Council of Lyon in 1274 hoped to create a united church as long as the Orthodox accepted papal authority and believed in the filioque. But the Lyon Unity Project shortly fell apart, and the filioque was politically rejected in Byzantium. After the expulsion of Catholic crusaders from Constantinople in 1261, the Turks became Byzantium's main enemy. Turkey was expanding quickly. From 1402 to 1433, the Ottomans conquered Angora, Adrianople, and Thessalonica, while making inroads into the Balkans and Asia Minor. All these territories were uncomfortably close to Constantinople. The Russian principalities, such as Moscow or Moscovy, could offer only nominal help to their spiritual ancestor as they were struggling against internal strife and the Golden Horde. European powers were largely indifferent to Byzantium's Turkish problem. For example, the Holy Roman Empire thought the Ottomans threatened only Byzantium, Poland, and Hungary, not the Holy Roman Empire. Because the Byzantine Empire now had no reliable allies, its security became a confessional issue. If the Orthodox Church religiously, religiously united with the West, perhaps the expanding Islamic and Turkish world could be resisted. Despite the failure of the Lyon Council two centuries earlier, the Byzantine Emperor John VIII pressured Constantinople's bishops to consider, or perhaps barter for, spiritual union with Rome. These concerns about the security of Christendom culminated in the meetings at Ferrari and Florence, which occurred from 1438 to 1440. Muscovite Russia entered the picture when its religious representative, Metropolitan Isidore, attended the council as well. The Byzantine Emperor and the Patriarch 
thought the West could save them from the Turks if church unity could be achieved. While the Eastern bishops were divided on the issue, Catholics spoke with the Russian Isidore about the Filioque, and eventually he was convinced of the West's ability to help Orthodoxy expel the Turks out of Europe. The Russian religious leader assured the Catholics that he thought that he could convince his political leaders in Moscovy to sign on to the Filioque. Isidore returned to Moscovy in March 1441, where his suggestion of union with the Christian West was not at all well received. His church colleagues were very surprised to hear him espouse the idea of the Filioque and unity with the West, and the Moscovite Tsar at the time, Vasily II, was horrified. Religious submission to the Roman Pope would degrade him politically. And here we can see that religion was a political issue for Roman Russian authority, just as it was for Byzantium. Vasily would agree with the expulsion, with the expression of the Byzantines of that who opposed the Union, who supposedly thought something like this, quote, better the turban of the Muslims than the tiara of the Pope. This secular religious situation was not kind to Isidore, who was chained, denounced as a satanic agent, and replaced with John as the Moscovite Metropolitan. In December 1452, the Florentine Union did finally take place, however, between the Byzantine and the Roman churches without the participation of Moscovy. But eventually it was all for naught. The Ottomans took Constantinople in May the following year. Vasily II had rejected the Florentine Union, which politically broke Muscovite away from the Byzantine Empire. It also confirmed Russia's separation from Rome. It, when we will now look at how this created Russian political legitimacy, religious independence, and ultimately a Russian Christian identity. And so the third Rome emerges. In not signing on to the religious union with Rome, Vasily II gained both political and religious capital. Circumstances allowed the Christ Russian clergy to choose its own metropolitan to replace the, quote, erroneous pro-Florentine Ilarion. John became the new Russian, re Russian religious leader in 1448, seven years after Vasily had requested permission from the distant and pro-Union Byzantine patriarch who had given no reply. This gave the Russian church more independence from Constantinople's religious control. This process can be seen to start in the late 14th century even, um, and this was when Moscow was under the domination of the Muslim Golden Horde, which was the successor state to the Mongols. Western Russian principalities were also under the Catholic Poland-Lithuanian state, and despite the destruction of their initial invasion of Rus, the Mongols largely left the Russian church alone. The Byzantines also had good relations with the Mongols because they did not directly attack the Byzantine Empire and they were a counterbalance against the Turks. Therefore, the Byzantine Church allowed the Russian Metropolitanate to be moved from Moscow to be moved to Moscow from Kiev, and it was believed that the Orthodox Slavs would fare better under the Muslim Golden Horde's authority than under that of Catholicism, such as in so with this barred that from hap from Russian or, or Rus metropolitanate to be moved into the West. So, metropolitan was moved to more towards Moscovy instead. The Russian church's increased independence was gained in parallel with the growth of, of the Muscovite state. One of, the most one of the most important events associated with this was the Battle of Kulikovo in September 1380, in which Moscow's Prince Dmitry II had defeated a Golden Horde army. Though its political significance is debatable, after all, the Horde sacked Moscow two years later, the, the Battle of Kulikovo was a very important symbol in Russian history and contributed to the development of Holy Russia. In this narrative, the Golden Horde had been defeated and Russia's freedom was soon at hand. The Horde had lost all actual authority over the Russians in the following century after a bloodless challenge with Tsar Ivan III, who was Dmitry II's great-grandson. This challenge happened on the Ugra River. And the, the Golden Horde also had to deal with Tamerlane's conquests as well as internal division. Having thrown off the Mongol yoke, Ivan III began Muscovite Russia's gathering of lands, which involved the seizure of rival Russian principality Novgorod also, and also a war against Lithuania. 
Moscow colonized eastern lands, and this colonization process included missionary work. This, in turn, strengthened the Russian state because Moscow was the center of Russian Orthodoxy. Ever since 988, the Orthodox Christian faith had been a unifying factor for the people scattered among the divided amongst the divided Rus territories, which over the years had been divided or shared between rival Rus principalities, the Golden Horde, and Poland-Lithuania. Orthodox Christianity was also a cultural preserver, giving the people of Rus an anchoring memory when they were under Mongol occupation. But now, in the hands of a single Muscovite state and under the Russian church, Russia could make its own way and create a national self-image. When the Metropolitanate of the Russian Church was given patriarchal status in 1589, this only gave the faith more authority. Firstly, no longer were the Russians under the Golden Horde subjugation, which had been blamed on the sin of the Russian people. But the Horde's rule over Russia only served to deepen the land's, quote, Christian consciousness, says Alexander Soloviev in his book, Holy Russia. This is because as the Mon Muscovite state grew, it could resist the Muslim Mongol successors and eventually push them out for orthodoxy. There came to be a somewhat crusading spirit in Russia, expressed in epics about heroic warriors, Bukatiri, who expanded the light of Russia and fought off the darkness of paganism and Islam. The fall of Byzantium in 1453 to the Muslim Turks strengthened Russia's image as a Christian state in a dangerous, hostile world. The idea appeared that Moscow would be Eastern Europe's savior, taking the continent and Byzantium back from the Muslims. With Constantinople's defeat, Russia was now the only remaining Orthodox land. The Muscovite Principality fully embraced its role of Byzant Byzantium's true successor. The Translatio Imperii idea indeed had some merit. Ivan III had married Sophia Palaiologos, the, who was the last Byzantine emperor's niece, and the double-headed eagle device of Byzantium was used in Moscow, and the Russians had also inherited the, quote, work of Constantinople, and they accepted the mess messianic mission of saving Christendom from Muslim rule. Not only were Russians Russians, they were now holy Russians, a chosen people with the, quote, conviction that an Orthodox Russian was the most perfect citizen and Holy Rus the foremost state in the world. These were the words of N. M. Karazin, who penned them in his 1811 work called Memoir on Ancient and Modern Russia. In Karazin's day, the idea of medieval Russia being a utop utopic mythical place was a popular literary theme. This was in the 19th century. In Russia's early history, this utopia of Holy Russia was framed in the idea of a third Rome. Metropolitan John, appointed just years, be years before Byzantium fell, said that God had turned away from the second Rome of Byzantium because it had religious entered a religious union with the papal first Rome, which had long before abandoned true Orthodox Christianity. According to this idea, when it joined the first Roman heresy, the second Rome, Byzantium, suffered a military defeat at the hands of the godless Hagarites. This was a term referencing Muslims' uh, supposed descent from Hagar. Then, around 1525, there was Elder Philophe, who proclaimed the city of Moscow to be the continuation of Rome and Constantinople. Muscovy was thus the third Rome, and it would last forever. A fourth Rome was inconceivable in Philophe's mind, as Moscow was eternal. In his mind, the clergy and the state within the third Rome were one. And the Christian world now began and ended there, in Muscovy. Russian cities other than Moscow also rejected the Council of Florence, giving them some legitimacy in the Russian Orthodox realm. But the center of the religious church, however, was centered in Moscow. Moscow Tsar was the only true Christian ruler in the world. He was the master of all Christians. Even though some other Russian principalities could theoretically have claimed to be the Third Rome, Philophe mentioned Moscow and the title stayed with that city. Philophe said that, 
all Christians would come to Moscow. It has been argued that Third Rome idea emerged, emerged the Russian, quote, messianic mission with an imperialistic spirit. So again, perfect example of symphonia. The church and the state supporting each other, blended together, totally inseparable from each other. Can't have one without the other. Certainly, the claim that it encompassed the true Christendom would suggest this idea of merging Russian messianic messianism with an imperialistic attitude. But the concept also brought with it an apocalyptic vision of the future. If Moscow was the last stand of true Orthodox Christianity, what else was left? Here, you know, we should look to Robert Marcus again, whose work I briefly referenced at the beginning of the study. To reiterate, Marcus said that when the pagan Roman Empire was transformed into a Christian government, Christendom had to define its role within the world. It was no longer a persecuted group, but it was rather now in power. And despite its emphasis on evangelism and God's love for mankind, Christianity was also an exclusive religion. And then we go to, we look at the words of Daniel Culicello Barber, and he said the following in his book called On Diaspora, Christianity, Religion, and Secularity. And here's what he said. Christianity recognized its identity through the naming of a heretical outside, and it recognized itself as proper religion through the naming of other improper religions. The essences of Christianity and religion are in this sense intertwined, even mutually constitutive. But note that this identification of Christianity and religion can only take place against a backdrop of difference between Christian religions and other religions. According to this idea, Barber is saying that uh, Christianity had to define itself in opposition to Roman paganism and other non-Christian religions. Christianity divided the world between the us, the saved, and them, the condemned, outside of Christ. This ideology in the Christian context makes sense, for the New Testament itself claims that salvation is in Christ alone. As the Apostle Peter said in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Throughout history, religious exclusivity has been observed between different wings within the Christian world. We've already seen this when looking at the Western-Eastern split over papal authority, the filioque, and other disagreements. One Christian could apply the heretic label to another Christianity-believing person or people who believed differently about some point of doctrine. The supposed apostate would be as much on the outside as someone who is not a Christian believer in any sense at all. How does Barber's idea of the heretical outside apply to Moscow and the formation of its self-image as Holy Russia? Look, think of it this way. What could Moscow do when Byzantium, quote, lost its way, uniting with the Catholic Church in 1452? And then a few months later, Byzantium fell to the Turks. Russia's Orthodox faith had originally come from Byzantium, but now this prodigal father was gone. Robert Marcus might have a say that Russia had to spiritually redefine itself. Instead of being a successor of Byzantium, it has to say, well, yeah, we got our faith from there, but they've lost their way. So what role do we have in the world now? We're on our own religiously. Daniel Barber might comment that the Third Rome was an idea that cemented Russian Christianity's sense of lonely righteousness. Russia had become the final fortress of Christianity against a world filled with apostate Christians and the threat of the Muslim states. And this was a true case of us, Muscovy, versus them, versus Roman Catholicism and Muslim powers. The Third Rome idea was thus born in this, in this situation. In being the final Orthodox Christian state, the quote, beginning and, true, uh, beginning and end of true Christendom, Muscovy and Russia gained a sense of purpose and identity in the world. Russia's Christian identity had been around since Kiev's conversion to the Christian religion in 988, but it evolved through the subsequent centuries re religious political events, the Eastern-Western Schism, Constantinople's union with Rome, Byzantium's fall to the Ottomans, and this eventually turned into 
the ideology or the thinking or the mentality of the Third Rome. As Russia's power spread out from Muscovy into the territories of the former Golden Horde, into Siberia, and eventually onto the Pacific Coast, the idea of Holy Russia also expanded. So in such a holy state, considering the Byzantine idea of, of uh, Symphonia, the idea that the state and the church were so closely tied, in such a holy state as Russia, how is the Tsar perceived? The head of the Muscovite government was, of course, a man. But like the Byzantine emperor, he was given this sort of holy status, for God had given him this position. While Vasily III, Ivan III's son, was called the Lord's steward, others imputed godly power to the Tsar by quoting St. John Chrysostom. Quote, For in his earthly nature, the Tsar, or, or perhaps ruler, is like all other men, but in the authority of his kingship, like God. If, ye, if then ye resist authority, ye resist God's commandment. Vasily III also embodied the Byzantine concept again of symphonia. Like the Byzantine emperors, Muscovite Tsars were ecclesiastical rulers. They were expected to be involved in religious rituals, embodying the Third Rome spiritual character in the state. They also started religious councils and chose who sat on them. Nicholas Zernov tells us that the Muscovite leaders were ultimately not military rulers like the Western European kings. The Tsar was a, quote, dignitary of the church rather than a secular ruler. After all, it would make sense that the, quote, only remaining Orthodox Christian land would have such a leader, so closely tied to spiritual matters within the state. Zernov makes an interesting point here. To see this, we can look at the portraits of Tsar Alexei Mihailovich and his son, Peter the Great. Peter the Great, of course, uh, subordinated the church to, to the government in a very striking way, getting rid of the Moscow Patriarchate and replacing it with, with the Holy Synod, uh, a state body. But his father, is, Alexei, is richly adorned in clothing, with inset gems and with a cross on top of his crown. Peter the Great, however is famously painted wearing Western-style clothing, Western robes, and even armor on occasion. So you see these differences between someone where the state was and the, and the government were very closely tied. You see in Tsar Alexei kind of a religious feel to his portrait, but uh, Peter the Great, he looks much more Western. He looks much more like a secular, modern ruler. But here's another Side note here, Nicholas Zernov says, yes, that Russian Tsars were not particularly military leaders, but it must not be forgotten that Russian Tsars were certainly no strangers to military affairs and conquests, as both Ivan III and his grandson Ivan the Terrible showed in their respective campaigns against Novgorod and the Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan. And of course, Peter the Great also had his great military uh, reforms and victories as well. Some scholars have noted differences between the Russian and Byzantine implementations of Symphonia. John Meyendorf uh, argues that the state was stronger in Russia than in Constantinople, and he cites the example of Metropolitan Philip, whom Ivan the Terrible had killed in 1568 for opposing him. Ivan the Terrible was also, quote, married seven times without noticeable religious opposition. By contrast, the Church of Byzantium severely reprimanded Emperor Leo VI Leo in 905 for marrying a fourth woman, which greatly hurt his reputation. The fact that during his reign, Peter the Great was able to subject the Church to state authority under the Holy Synod, this helps prove Meyendorf's point. But the Russian state was still not completely independent from the Church, for it still had some power and influence. And we will now look at an example of this in the, in the Raskol. Now it's time to apply the theory of Holy Russia and look at it in action at a particular moment in history. And this way we will get a sense of how the Orthodox Church and the Muscovite state have, have interacted with each other and how Russian Orthodox identity acted in the public space. 
And so, as I said, the example I've chosen to look at here is the Raskol, which is, or the schism, within Russian Orthodoxy. This event can be traced to an era known as the Time of Troubles, which is the Smuta in Russian. And the Smuta started in January 1598 with the death of Tsar Ivan the Terrible's son, Theodore Ivanovich. Theodore was the last of the Rurikid dynasty, and Russia's political situation was tenuous. The dynasty ended as Russia was burdened with Polish, Tatar, and Swedish invasions, as well as internal rebellions. Not only was Muscovy's military unable to fight back effectively, the Russian church was also seen as having fallen into lackluster service, immorality, and having inadequate knowledge of scripture. Finally, in 1613, Michael Romanov was selected to become the Tsar, starting the Romanov dynasty. The first Romanov set himself to re-establishing Muscovite control and restoring Holy Russia. The Third Rome had just suffered from the foreign attacks of so-called, quote, pagan Lithuanians, wolf-like Poles, and the imagined machinations of supposedly, quote, unclean Jews. Just like the Mongol invasions and occupation of Rus centuries past, the Time of Troubles was an era of judgment from God for the people and the Tsar's sins, including those of Ivan the Terrible, who had killed one of his other sons and contributed to the political catastrophe by doing this. But with the judgment came a call to repentance, in addition to the xenophobic attitudes resulting from the recent turmoil. After the passing of trial, the time came to reform the church and rid it of remaining, quote, pagan practices. Preaching was done with more care. And this was, I guess you could say, this was Second Chronicles 7.14 being applied to the Russian land. Quote, if my, if God's people, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Despite its failings and the threats from outsiders, Moscow was still the third Rome, and it would not, and it would quote, not lose its birthright. So with the with the smutha now, uh, now happening, it's a time of judgment. But we should also turn back to our faith. We should turn back to the Lord, and we should restore our land. In the monumental work, The Icon and the Axe, James Billington gives us an excellent explanation of how this drive for spiritual reform and restoration worked after the time of troubles had passed, the Romanov dynasty had been established, and political order had been restored. He mentions two factions that arose within the Russian church, and he called them the theocratic and fundamentalist sects. Both groups were afraid of Western methods and practices in worship, such as the cessation of icon reverence. And these Western methods were starting to influence courtiers and other state officials. The, the theocrats believed that Russia needed to become a theocracy. Instead of a symphonia of church and state working together, they wanted the rule of church over state. Billington says that the Russian monarchy's weakened state had had provided an opening for the theocrats to make this dream a possible reality. The theocratic faction had the monk Nikon in its corner for the fight over Russia's spiritual future. Tsar Alexei Mihailovich had called this cleric for help with restoring order in the realm, which was still dealing with another possible round of insurrections and invasions. Nikon thus developed a close relationship with the Tsar, and the Tsar eventually appointed him Patriarch of the Russian Church in July 1652. But he was not ready to fully submit to the Tsar, as shown when he refused to submit to rules placed upon monasteries in the 1649 Ulogenia Law Code. Patriarch Nikon also assumed control of the government when Tsar Alexei commanded armies in the Polish-Russian War raging at the time. In the 1650s, Patriarch Nikon set about the restoration of Russian worship, desiring to make it follow the Greek example from Constantinople. For though the old Byzantine capital was now under Ottoman Turkish rule, the Greek church had remained intact. Russian clergymen were to wear Greek-style vestments. The sign of the cross was changed to include three fingers and not just two. Jesus' name was spelled differently, and the creed was altered. 
Unfortunately, Nikon was changing Russian practice to be in line with the Greek church of that time. Because the Greek church was, was intact, yes, but still under Turkish occupation, there was no guarantee that these practices were original. Though Nikon did acquire some ancient documents from the time of Kievan Rus' conversion in the 10th century, no one was able to translate them. So Nikon cheated, in a way, using modern sources of, tra of tradition rather than the actual original ones. But what's interesting is Nikon's power over the state in this matter. Tsar Alexei submitted to these church reforms. We can see that even if the Russian Tsars were at times more powerful in the church-state dynamic, as we saw earlier, they were not immune from church influence. Also, it's very interesting to note that Nikon commanded the clergy to wear long hair. John Meyendorf says that this was a, quote, sign of civil power in Byzantium, grown by Greek, Greek clergy, as the Patriarch of Constantinople was invested with civil responsibilities in the Ottoman Empire." End of quote. So that's just an interesting uh, little side note there, how the, the wearing of long hair was a sign of civil power, not just religious power. Now we move to the fundamentalist faction, which became associated with a priest named Avakum. Avakum came from a very conservative group within the church, which disapproved of instrumental music, smoking, and other innovations, such as icons painted in a Western art style. Innovation was the path to hell, the fundamentalists thought, and it was also associated with foreigners. And so this makes sense uh, um, after, the, the, after the smuta and some xenophobia that was in Moscovy. So this idea of any kind of foreign influence, especially on something like the faith, could be seen as threatening. So with the innovations imposed upon Christianity through Patriarch Nikon's reforms, Avakum and his friends believed that God was being diluted. The creedal changes were perceived as lessening Christ and the Holy Spirit's importance in human salvation. For example, Billington says, quote, From representing Christ as sitting at the right hand of God, the new creed was read, was seated, this change's effect to the fundamentalists was to imply that Christ was now sometimes on and sometimes off of his throne, like a 17th century monarch. Avakum was horrified at such changes, for the fundamentalists had a legalistic view of worship rituals, believing that God's meaning was found in their correct performance. Some fundamentalists feared that God was leaving them and history itself due to Nikon's changes. Apocalyptic visions had formed in which Tsar Alexei was a, quote, horn of the Antichrist, and the prophetic number of 666, the ancient Christian number for the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, the, this, this number had become associated with the Antichrist, and this was, a number was arrived upon in, in the fundamentalist faction by adding the numbers associated with certain words, which included Alexei, Nikon, and Freethinker. So much like a lot of people in modern times, when they try to predict, for example, Christ's second coming, they will take a, a certain fact, a certain number associated with that fact or name, and then add it up, and it's like, oh, we have a fancy, we have a good number now, we have a fancy formula for this. So the fundamentalists were doing this same thing. And in addition to these reforms with contemporary Greek influence, the Catholic powers of the West were also seen as a threat to Russia's soul, bringing with them rational Aristotelian thought. The fundamentalists, who became known as old believers, feared that the impossible had happened. The Third Rome had fallen. It had become fake, and it had to be abandoned. In going to the Greek church in Constantinople for its new practices, the Russian Orthodox Church had dropped Moscow's mantle of being a holy city. The once holy Tsar had become an agent of Satan, and there was no choice but to create a new Rome elsewhere, separated from the state and the world. So here we're trying to create a fourth Rome, perhaps. Refusing to follow Nikon the Apostates' liturgical changes, the old believers suffered state persecution. Avakum was sent to Siberia in exile and excommunicated in 1666, kind of a poetic year. He returned the favor by anathematizing Patriarch Nikon's church. 
While he was eventually burned at the stake, other old believers suffered a siege at Solovetsky Monastery, and other people, other members of this, of this faction, in, inspired by apocalyptic ideology, committed self-immolation. And, but, however, today, old believers still exist in some communities. So the, the movement hasn't, uh, hasn't completely died out. But Patriarch Nikon did not survive either, for he had gotten too involved in politics trying to create his Russian theocratic state. Tsar Alexei deposed him in 1666, the exact same year as Avakum's excommunication. The Tsar was now the dominant partner in the church-state relationship. Very soon, the state handpicked clergy, and the new religious leadership was clearly willing to follow the Tsar. For instance, one metropolitan said that Avakum was excommunicated because Tsar Alexei would be happy with the move. With Nikon and Avakum out of the way, the Tsar could concentrate on governing without as much religious interference. Holy Russia would no longer pray to God through the two icons, so to speak, of church and state, but only through one. Alexei's son, Peter the Great, would further cement this power structure when he scrapped the Russian patriarchate altogether. Peter the Great's secularization program of the church corresponded with his attempt to bring Russia on par with the Western powers, which he had personally visited, studied, and greatly admired. His co-opting of church control is too long a history to be repeated here in great detail, but it is a fascinating one. His spiritual regulation of 1720 resulted from what would have been Avakum's worst nightmare, the, quote, massive importation of Western secularized civilization in the 17th and 18th centuries. The church was drafted as an agent of the government as the regulation turned the religious organization of the church into territory-based, quote, state departments. The state even appropriated the church's mysteries and practices. For example, if any plot against the government was revealed in the ritual of confession, the attending priest was obligated to report it. And in order to properly westernize the Russian state, the old Holy Russia was being replaced with the state, which was being transformed into a sort of church. So we could, we could also look at other instances of the Holy Russian memory being used in response to crises, such as the Second World War. And I've talked about this in previous podcasts, but the, the atheistic Soviet state's persecution and murder of believers is well known. Yet, when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, Russian Orthodoxy sprang to the communist country's defense. Despite the sufferings that the Soviet government had unleashed upon the church, Metropolitan Sergius Stragorodsky, who was the acting patriarch, issued a statement on the same day as the German attack. He called upon the memory of great Orthodox Russian soldiers, such as Dmitry II, and he compared the Nazis to Russia's historical enemies, the German Catholic Teutonic Knights, the Mongols, and the French Emperor Napoleon. In fact, the church became part of the Soviet war effort by collecting money and encouraging Christians to fight the fascist invaders. Joseph Stalin even restored the Patriarchate in September 1943, more than two centuries after Peter the Great's spiritual regulation, which destroyed it. How could the church now play such a role to help save the oppressive, anti-religious Soviet Union from its Nazi enemy? The editors of a wartime book, which was called The Truth About Religion in Russia, explained how to resolve this moral conflict. The editors seemed to reiterate St. John Chrysostom's previously quoted words about political leaders. They answered that those clergymen who suffered political persecution had in fact rebelled against the state by carrying out, quote, purely political anti-Soviet activities. They had rejected Stalin's, and thus God's, authority. The role of the church during the Soviet-German war is relevant today because as recently as the summer of 2015, religious icons have appeared depicting Stalin as a warrior saint. This fascinating subject of Russian Orthodox Church and Soviet state relations has been studied in depth elsewhere. 
But even from this very short introduction to the topic, it's clear that the idea of Holy Russia was still very much alive by the time war broke out between Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Russia. From Philofay's concept of the Third Rome in the 16th century, to the old believers, to modern portrayals of Joseph Stalin and religious images, orthodoxy has been a very important marker of Russian identity and culture. The orthodox Russians of old had to define themselves in their frightening situation, having been surrounded by quote, religiously wayward enemies and the threats of constant invasions. The apolitic version of the Third Rome, which combined religion with stately power, accomplished this definition. It has given the Russian people over the years a sense of political purpose and religious identity at various points throughout its existence, especially in times of national disaster. And that's it for today's episode. I certainly hope you that you enjoyed it and keep your ears tuned for more episodes upcoming. Until then, have a great one.